From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, the partial government shutdown in the U.S. stretched on into its fifth week and is closing on the second missed payday. President Trump's border wall remains a sticking point, but we talked about one crucial sector that's getting left out of the immigration debate, higher education. Universities and colleges are a crucial economic driver for the U.S. and a key export. Ignoring the impact on them could end up hurting President Trump's treasured trade balance. We spoke with Ann Kruger, the former deputy managing director at the IMF, who is currently a professor at Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies, about what she says, quote, for all of his complaints about the U.S. trade deficit, Trump is shooting himself in the foot with his policies. Ann told us why she's calling this phenomenon Trump's brain drain. Uh, We have a lot of foreign students who come to this country. Uh, Many of them are paying full tuition at American universities. And uh, that is, of course, income from abroad or, you know, something people from abroad are buying the same way as they do uh, when when we send a good to them. So it should be counted, but it isn't. But it certainly is foreign exchange we receive, and it has the same economic effects, certainly, as uh, do other kinds of exports. So, and Professor, do you have any sense of just how much of a detrimental impact the immigration policies of the U.S. so far have had on the education and and, and the sort of desire for foreigners to come here to receive their degrees? Well, it's hard to say. It's hard to say in part because we don't have, you know, statistics that say I decided not to come on account of how. We, <laughs> we do know. We do know that in the past, well, about three years ago, uh, the number of graduate students or the number of students, foreign students in general, coming to this country began dropping. And they dropped in 2016, 17, 2017, 18. And it looks like they are dropping again on first reports this year. So we've had three years in a row of drops. And that more or less co- coincides with the time. Uh, when the uh, difficulties with immigration started. So some of it has to be that. But having said that, other countries are recognizing that it's a good thing for them to do too. Uh, We do have superb universities. Many of them are trying to upgrade theirs. And part of it probably is simply that uh, there's more competition from other countries. Can you give us a little bit of perspective on just how steep that competition was uh, prior to some of the changes being made here in the U.S.? Because you're getting a lot of anecdotal information that Canada, Japan and a lot of other nations are now vying for that talent that we once welcomed here. 
Oh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, a lot of countries are vying for that talent, and for good reason. It's been an enormous asset for us, both because of the, graduate, uh, the four undergraduate and graduate students coming in, and because many of the best and the brightest then have become uh, people who stay in the U.S. Uh, and do wonderful work, innovation, and other things that help growth here, or they go back to their own countries, and they're good friends of the U.S. As to the number who are competing, quite clearly more are going abroad relative to here, but I can't give you any numbers. Well, you might not be able to give it any numbers, but give us a sense of how this whole system works together, because U.S. universities need these foreign students who pay these international tuitions, which are higher than what domestic students pay, to make education more affordable for students in the U.S. What does the brain drain mean then for uh, domestic financial aid? Well, what happens, of course, is not that they pay more. It's that what we have in U.S. universities now is what is known as the sticker price, which is what they say tuition will be at this university. But then a lot of financial aid is given to students who otherwise uh, their parents would have difficulty affording it. Now, the fraction of foreign students coming in who pay the full sticker price of tuition is much higher than that of domestic students. So, in effect, everyone that comes in and pays the full sticker price is not only getting, are we exporting something in the value that amount, but half of that, or almost half of that, is probably going to finance an American student. So, Professor, there's a question. Sure, the U.S. has gotten less hospitable to foreigners, certainly based on its policies, but what other universities and what other country can really compete, especially at a time when China is cracking down on academics and you're seeing similar moves elsewhere? Well, there are a number of places that are competing. Well, first off, some some people just aren't coming who might otherwise have come. So some part of it is staying home. And some of the top uni Chinese universities are, in many fields, pretty good. So that's, it's not only that they... You know, the, even if they don't go somewhere else, they don't come here either. Uh, but there are, you, Australia has certainly competed effectively. The Canadian numbers are up. The English, the UK numbers are up. Uh, probably some other European ones are up, but I just don't know that. In terms of what this means for innovation, um, we talk about how higher education counts for, by hosting foreign students, U.S. universities create a kind of soft power. Talk about what that means in practice and how it contributes to innovation. Well, among other things, uh, graduate students are important in universities because they learn, but they're also important because of the research assistants for many of the faculty. And many of them uh, participate and participate in valuable ways in many of much of the research that many of our outstanding faculty members are doing. Uh, having fewer of those people obviously itself is a difficulty, but on top of that, there has been a tradition where those who took PhDs in technical fields could stay on and work and get work experience here for three or five years uh, under these uh, special visas for that purpose. So the Trump administration has been cutting down on the number of those, and that means the likelihood that someone can stay here is smaller and fewer people will stay here. That means there will be fewer of those and they'll have to get other people in the technical slots if they can, and companies are reporting shortages. And on top of that, uh, some of those people are going elsewhere and they're becoming assets in those places. Then, Alberto Ramos, head of Latin America Economic Research at Goldman Sachs, came on to talk about what we should expect from Latin American economies in 2019. Stocks for the region are having their best annual start in more than 30 years. These market moves are happening as new governments are coming to power in Brazil and Mexico. We started by talking about how they were pricing in these new regimes and asked Alberto if, after close to 14 presidential votes over the past few years, investors were finally satisfied with the current lineup of political leaders. 
It seems so. They are giving them the benefit of the doubt, and there are genuine reasons to be carefully optimistic about the outlook for both Argentina and Brazil. In Brazil, we had a very successful political transition. The market is inspired by the very liberal agenda of the economic team and the commitment to pursue pro-growth, pro-investment, pro-trade policies, also a commitment to deepen the fiscal adjustment, uh, to deliver a mean and leaner public sector, uh, also a very powerful micro-agenda, privatizations, concessions, opening to trade. It's a promise, right? You know, now the proof of the pudding will be, will they be able from a political standpoint to deliver what they have camp- campaigned upon? Uh, I think they will be able to deliver something, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. the full agenda uh, that they were elected to implement, but I think the market will give them the benefit of the doubt a step at a time. If they, for instance, approve a social security reform in 2019, the market will take that in stride. We expect the economy to recover, rates to remain low, the currency is competitive. So a bunch of good things, like not to be overjoyed by that promise, uh, but at least over the last 20 or 30 years, you've never seen policies moving in the direction that they seem to be moving right now. Other countries, Argentina, you know, they are undergoing a very deep and painful fiscal adjustment, macroeconomic adjustment, but it's needed, it's healing. It will deliver the economy to a much better place. Uh, Of course, we need policy continuity. There will be an election in October that will be a watershed event that may or may not guarantee the continuity of the policies we have right now, but if they stay the course and continue to embrace the fiscal adjustment that has been uh, funded by the IMF, I think they will be in a good place. Yeah. And uh, what about Mexico? Of course, we saw the new president come in and sort of immediately unnerve people with the cancellation of that airport project. It looks like they're trying to reassure investors that policy isn't going to undergo radical disruptive changes. But are you more cautious there? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, while in Brazil we are inspired by the direction in policy in Mexico, we are, you know, somewhat concerned where policies may be going. The good thing is that, you know, AMLO or Lopez Obrador is inheriting an economy in pretty good shape. Solid growth, you know, solid fiscal, uh, solid external accounts, uh, credible monetary policy framework, you know, rates that are being set at a very conservative level. So we don't, you don't, uh, you know, are uh, asking the president to do a lot. It certainly could improve mm. on a situation that is already quite robust. But there is the risk of a more populist interventionist heterodox policies that could eventually impair uh, consumer and business sentiment and impact the economy going forward, could scare investors, both domestic and foreign investors. So to be seen. Uh, but there is certainly a word of caution out there and the investors are aware of that. You say particularly the moon music sounds better when it comes to Brazil, but have we gone too far too fast? I'm looking at the spread between Brazilian and Mexican debt, for example. I mean, we've narrowed to something like 47 basis points, less than half a percentage point, when actually they're about five notches wide in terms of credit ratings. I'm not saying Mm. the credit ratings are the be-all and end-all, but have people got a bit too euphoric when you're looking at one to another? Potentially, yes. I mean, it really depends on the capacity of the authorities to deliver in that very liberal pro-growth agenda, right? You know, if they end up fulfilling that promise, I think the market can rally further, you know, but uh, you're absolutely right. In terms of credit spreads, Brazil is already trading as if it were classified as investment grade, which is not. With regards to equities, is one of the most expensive uh, EM equity markets that we have out there. Uh, there is more upside if they deliver, so it's uh, the question is not about policy direction. Well, the question in Mexico is precisely about policy direction, but it's about policy implementation capacity, and that is the big question mark. Uh, it's not about policy formulation in Brazil, it's about the capacity of the Bolsonaro administration, which is a minority government in Congress, to you know build bridges into Congress to be able to deliver you know that agenda, uh, and particularly the social security reform. If they are able to do that, that justifies the prices that we have today, and we can see prices rallying more. If they are not, you know we could be bracing ourselves for a market correction. 
Alberto, uh, Argentina, one of the big issues was external imbalances, and that explained you know, some of the massive peso volatility. Is that story over? Do you see things roughly more in balance and sort of less risk of a sharp adjustment again in 2019? We're moving in that direction. You know, Argentina was plagued by very large double-digit twin deficits, a very large fiscal deficit, and a very large current account deficit to a certain extent. One is the mirror image of the other one. They have committed right. under the IMF program to deepen the fiscal adjustment. Uh, they have also allowed the currency to depreciate and to reach very competitive levels. So the fiscal adjustment plus the brutal recession that the economy is undergoing plus a competitive exchange rate should take care of the external imbalance. And we already see clear signs of a very significant turnaround of the trade balance, of a very significant turnaround of the current account, and if they stay the course in terms of the promised fiscal consolidation, they will be in a better place. Again, adjustment is not a party, is you know, by, by definition quite painful, but it is the pain that you have to pay after you know, the populist experiment that created the imbalances that the Macri administration is now trying to, to overcome. But given some of the stability now that we are seeing in Argentina markets, I mean, there was, I mean, there was sort of a period where the market really didn't really trust in what Macri is doing, particularly when he went back to the IMF. So does this kind of sort of prove him right, at least in the interim? Right. I mean, uh the big question marks were not about, you know, the policies in itself. You know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, they brought the policies to what is needed to fix the economy. And they needed to, you know, to deliver the fiscal adjustment. That's what they are doing. They need super tight monetary policy in the short term. And they need a competitive currency. So all the three pillars, we are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now there would be, like, political and social risk. There were some questions at the beginning about social stability, political stability, the capacity of the macro administration to steer that adjustment. There were also some concerns of, you know, policy inversion with the elections in October. The polls are saying that despite all the pain that we have been enduring in the second half, we're still enduring, that market is still competitive. You know? mm-hmm. So there's still a fair chance that it could be re-elected and that these you know, uh, market-friendly orthodox policies will remain in place. Nothing can be guaranteed, but at this stage it's actually quite notable that mm-hmm. it's still competitive given the macro environment. Alberto, it's interesting that we're talking about each one of these countries basically being in charge of its own destiny, but to a certain extent it's implicated by what the United States in particular mm-hmm. does, how and where the dollar goes. How much are you factoring that in at the moment when we're at, not at a consensus of where the Fed direction That's is going? Right, yeah. I mean, external variables are, you know, uh, very relevant for the outcome of these economies, not just Fed policy, but commodity prices, you know, mentioned the dollar, uh, global liquidity, global interest rates that are all germane to, to the outlook. Uh, in the case of Brazil, I think it will depend a lot more on domestic factors, yeah. particularly on domestic political factors, the capacity, basically governability, the capacity of the administration to deliver that agenda. It's a very closed economy to trade. Uh, the capital account is in very good shape. The current account has adjusted massively over the last three or four years. So, you know, favorable external winds will help or, or, you know, or impair their agenda, but I don't think it's going to be critical. In the case of Argentina, it's definitely much more vulnerable, much more exposed than in Brazil. That's why you need the adjustment, you know, so that mm. uh, they no longer you know, depend to the extent that they used to on the kindness of strangers. If they continue to adjust the fiscal, if they really deliver the zero primary balance for 2019, their fiscal funding requirements will be uh, much, much smaller. On top of that, they have guaranteed ample funding uh, uh, from the IMF, $56 billion, a very generous program. So they are fine until 2020, but they have to do the homework. Uh, You mentioned, Alberto, that, okay, Brazil not as exposed to sort of global, um, the global economy as much. But what is your view on the global economy and since that would have more ramifications for 
Argentina and to Mexico. How concerned are you about a big slowdown perhaps emanating out of China and impacting anyone who's involved in oil or commodity production or anything like that? Sure. I mean, different degrees of exposure. You know, the big commodity exporters are much more exposed to the trade frictions and potential deceleration of China that could indirectly impact commodity prices and through the trade balance in the current account, uh, basically import recessionary winds into those economies. Uh, countries with large extending funding requirements, you know, the dollar and global interest rates uh, also uh, quite important. And in the case of Mexico, given the linkages between the real business cycle in Mexico and the real business cycle in the U.S., a potential uh, deeper deceleration of the U.S. economy uh, could generate, you know, important negative spillovers into an economy that on all counts is doing okay, but not, uh, it's not uh, very robust growth that could uh, resist uh, more uh, significant slowdown, slowdown in the U.S. But again, you know, uh, the region is today much more resilient, not immune, but much more resilient uh, to external forces than it was uh, four or five years ago, right before the, temp- uh, the tapering tantrum when, where current accounting balances were much, much higher. They have adjusted uh, monetary policy, they have adjusted the current account. Uh, so now, you know, they will be able to, you know, be uh, much more uh, in charge of their destiny than it was the case a few years ago. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Then we change gears to a new market for cannabis. The farm bill signed into law last month legalized hemp in the U.S. and is already prompting a rush of Canadian firms into the space. Canopy Growth recently announced it would spend up to $150 million to build the country's first production facility in New York State. And analysts are loving it. We spoke with Canopy Growth's founder, chairman, and CEO, Bruce Linton, about the venture. We started by asking how much the new facility could increase their total addressable market. So what we're looking at, this is our first announced state, and there's a lot of questions still around the farm bill. You know, what will interstate commerce look like? Uh, What products will we be able to make? What approvals can we get? So if you can progress this through and be able to make medical claims that the FDA would uh, substantiate, now you're talking about a pharmaceutical market. So you can think, I don't know, how big is that? Uh, What are we disrupting? Are we dealing with anxiety medications? Are we dealing with incremental sleep outcomes? Uh, You know, there's a whole area of uh, play there. And then if um, you can get to the point where you're efficiently making, say, a sports recovery drink, how big is the sports recovery drink for ones which could be really truly effective rather than just a sodium load and some color? And so the addressable market, I would say, is framing up more based on science than the opportunity to say uh, which ones we're disrupting now. But we're, we're pretty well along that path of the science. Bruce, obviously in New York City right now, you can't go anywhere without seeing ads for CBD oil or CBD infused drinks yeah. or snacks, or whatever it is. What happens in markets? What happens to CBD demand in markets once recreational cannabis is uh, legalized? Yeah, so I think you're going to find a lot of those products um, change what they say. And what I mean by that is uh, many of them are making claims, you know, rub this on your elbow and you will feel better. Well, <laughs> 
uh, I don't know, I think your skin's supposed to keep things out. And, you know, maybe it should say rub this on your elbow and your shirt will get dirty. And so when they make claims uh, of that nature without the FDA's uh, recognition of the efficacy and the process of getting there, I think that's going to be quite offside. And so what I think you're going to see is a market which has made, you know, some pretty interesting claims will get narrowed down, tidied up, and then become a really uh, proven out as the science permits. That's kind of normal course. When you regulate, you then have criteria, taxes, and structure, and science can follow into that framework. Bruce, what's the next step for Canopy? I mean, this obviously increases your capacity, yeah. and it gives you a little bit of a lead, I guess, on a lot of your competitors. Uh, is, are there plans, or do you have sort of a vision uh, for how you spread the company further uh, into, the U- into the U.S. market? Yeah, so what we did when, when New York State is we wanted to actually make a picture of road in an industrial park that may or may not have buildings, and what it becomes is a hemp hub. And what that means is that we're going to be processing hemp that comes from local and national farmers, but what's in hemp could be fiber, it could be industrial, it could be for fabric. Uh, there's protein, there's CBD. There's a variety of opportunities that could be dog care to uh, medical pharmaceutical research. So we're going to create that hub in New York, and I think we'll find a chance to replicate that in two or three more states. But then what we have is a legal operating platform in the U.S., which means we're working through distribution channels and becoming commercially regarded, and we're building brands. And so if and when state rights go through and we can actually start to contemplate how we could work with marijuana, I think we have a lot of the necessary infrastructure to accelerate with that. And how important is Constellation Brands to that infrastructure, and how easy or hard is it to work with this company when it is so Mm. enormous? Well, they're big, but you know what? They're entrepreneurs. The reason we partner with them is... um, they saw it first, they move fast, and they understand that we're a huge startup. You know, we're maybe a huge startup. We're 3,000 people. Um, we're a $14, $15 billion market cap, but um, we're also six and a half years old. And so Constellation is a very dynamic company. They're based out of uh, sort of upstate New York. And uh, it, was, it seemed like just the perfect fit. Why not play in their home turf, a very well-regulated market, uh, progressive-looking uh, opportunity from, uh, you know, Como's perspective. So they were pretty instrumental in terms of working with us to get this uh, as a solid first step. Bruce, how is the logistics of the Canadian recreational market right now? Because, of course, in the beginning, there were all kinds of issues with delivery and brands and shelf space and uh, shortages. Are things smoothing out? Well, you know, they're smoothing out. Well, I wouldn't then tell you they're smooth. What's happening is stores are opening up across the country. Different provinces or states are having more and more open. The federal government about two or three weeks ago announced the next wave of products, which will be available uh, before October of 2019, October 17, 2019. They include things from vapes to beverages. So now you can see where we're playing into the sweet space of Canopy and Constellation. We've got a bottling plant under construction. We expect to have those things come in, but there's still uh, far more demand than there is supply. And it's a function I think you'll see everywhere in the world. When um, people stand around waiting for 90-plus years under prohibition, they don't just kind of browse, they buy. After a weekend of intense football and questionable refereeing, the Los Angeles Rams will line up against the New England Patriots on February 3rd in Super Bowl 53. Atlanta won't be represented on the field, but the city will be in the spotlight as it hosts the big game at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We sat down with Steve Cannon, CEO of AMB Group, which owns and operates the stadium, to talk about the big game and started by asking him if the partial government shutdown was impacting their security plan. 
We are really comfortable with our security preparations. We've been working for more than a year with Homeland Security, with Atlanta Police Department, with Georgia Bureau of Investigation, with the FBI. Security is at the top of everybody's list for big events like this. We are not concerned about the government shutdown. We've been assured from Atlanta Police Department and the, and the, uh, the planning group, the host committee, mm -hmm. that we've got the resources on the ground to pull this off. We're very excited about bringing the, the hundreds of thousands of people into town, um, and we're going to do it very safely. So. Other than the unknown of potential delays through TSA right. at the airport, that's the only thing that we've got line of sight that's got us a little concerned. Uh, but the airport has assured us they've got contingency plans for that. So we're expecting it to go smoothly. So, Steve, can you just give us some color about the preparations? How many hot dogs you're ordering? What kind of uh, specialty items have you got on tap? What's, what's sort of been consuming your every moment? <laughs> it, you know, we want to put our best foot forward. This is a moment where the global spotlight shines on the city of Atlanta. And much like in 1996 when the Olympics came to town, we see this as one of those moments where we get to show off and, and what a great city Atlanta has become. So the preparations have been for the last year. The stadium is being transformed 500 People have been working for the last two weeks almost around the clock in transforming the stadium, getting it ready for the Super Bowl. Uh, as for hot dogs, we're ordering lots of them because... <laughs> That's the be official count. Because they only cost $2. So one of the surprise and delights is our food and beverage program, which is ranked number one in the NFL, uh, not just because it's cheap, but because it's really good and reflective of the food town that is Atlanta, mm. um, is going to really surprise people. So a $2 refillable Coke, a $2 hot dog, a $2 pretzel, a $5 beer. That is so... Not um, New York. That is so not New York. <laughs> it, and it really breaks tradition with, with all of the previous Super Bowls. It certainly does. And of course, it might cause people to question whether they need to tailgate as well. How early can people enter the stadium to get started before the game, to get started on that $5 beer? I mean, this is something you have to plan for. Stadium pricing in many other venues has become really an obstacle to entry, a, hur a hurdle to entry. So stadium opens for the Super Bowl four hours before kick, a full four hours. Uh, there's lots to do inside of the security perimeter. There's a fan plaza in, in our place that we call the Home Depot backyard. It's a great lot adjacent to the stadium. So we've tried to curate an, an offering inside of Mercedes-Benz Stadium that represents the best place to be pre-kick. Why be in a, in a tailgate lot when you can be inside of the stadium uh, enjoying a great offering? I have to say, so the team makes less money, but it creates more buzz and it gets more people in. What about people getting so plastered for the $5 beers? I mean, how big of a concern is that? So we've been doing this now for 18 months. So since we opened and we've had more than 4.6 million guests have come through. Mm -hmm. I won't tell you we've had no incidents with alcohol because sometimes, <laughs> I mean, it's a but sometimes that happens. Uh, but for the most part, uh, on, on par with everything out in the league. And at the end, um, we want folks having a great time in our stadium. And when it gets a little out of control, we've got security to help take care of that. I got to ask you, how much of the operational preparations are handled by you and your team versus the NFL? And I ask because of the controversy over musicians that have decided uh, or reportedly decided not to participate out of solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. Right. So this is the NFL's event. They make all the big decisions like entertainment and halftime show. Mm -hmm. We help them execute that because we know the building. Mm -hmm. um, we run the building. So our, our security together with, with the augmented NFL security runs the building. Our ticket folks, our guest relations folks. So we essentially work for the NFL for, for the Super Bowl. Just real quick here, I'm wondering from your perspective what it would take to really consider streaming services and moving oh, away good from question. cable. Streaming services. Yeah, uh, to like to basically allow people to see uh, the games 
outside of just cable news. So the NFL is, look, with the diversification of media, that's one of the biggest challenges is how do we make sure that people get to consume our product? And we are experimenting on alternative platforms, trying to bring younger millennials in. Uh, so you can get this on whatever device you want. You can stream that uh, through the partner Verizon uh, and through multiple platforms. So uh, that's the sort of the price of doing business now, and you'll see more and more in that with every successive Super Bowl. And finally, we caught up with Hans Humes, chairman and CEO of Greylock Capital Management, about the dueling presidents battling for control of Venezuela. Hans is a bondholder in both sovereign and PDVSA debt, and he told us why he thought that regime change could happen within months. We started by asking him how he thought this would all play out. You know, there's clearly a sense that a transition had to take place. And, and, you know, the last time I was in Caracas, there was a sort of a surreal atmosphere there, I mean, on the ground. And I think the biggest concern for uh, people was their immediate needs. So it's been months now where there have been demonstrations about lack of food, lack of pharmaceuticals, lack of medical care. Um, and I think the real preoccupation that things could just break down into a civil war. So this, there's, there's been a sense both outside and inside, that this is an unsustainable situation. The new thing with the you know, January 10th uh, inauguration of um, Maduro for his illegitimate term, I think kind of opened the doors for a potential transition. I think there has been a lot of hope that given the fact the United States and quite a lot of the world doesn't recognize this as a legitimate term, opens the way up for a transition. In terms of how this has played out, I'm not sure we, many of us trend, you know, expected it to happen as quickly as it did. You know, I do have to wonder, as an investor, and, and not to sort of dismiss or by any means the humanitarian aspect, but when you're investing in the debt of this country, how do you determine what value is left after all of the uh, people have moved out, after the fact that some of the oil has been pledged to China and Russia for debt? How do you determine that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the oil that's been pledged to China and Russia are... You know, there are probably a thousand oil fields that have been explored in Venezuela. And if you take the look at the two due diligence, maybe the top hundred are producing right now. The 900 below are very productive possibilities. So, you know, clearly when we're able to sit down and negotiate how this works out, you know, China and Russia's claims are going to be have to have to be factored in in some fashion. Hmm. There's no question you mentioned the humanitarian issue and the international aid that comes in there. You know, that's not something that I think creditors responsibly should go after, um, obviously. Um, but in terms of the payment capacity of the country, um, when the oil industry turns around and when Venezuela sort of reassumes its position as a relatively wealthy country in the region, which with proper economic management, I don't see why they couldn't. You know, at that point, you start figuring out how you figure out a way to tie the payment of the bonds to a recovery in the economy. Now, clearly, as bondholders, we've officially stated that we will only negotiate with the National Assembly mm -hmm. under U.S. law. That's pretty much the only channel we have. So we have to wait for some sort of a transition to be able to explore these avenues. Okay. In terms of timeline, I mean, there's a lot of things that need to happen before that whole process can start. We're probably not talking days. Is it months? Is it years? Well, I mean, given, uh, you know, Guaido asserted himself as a charismatic leader quicker than we imagined. And the most impressive thing is how most of the opposition in the aftermath of uh, the January 10th inauguration consolidated itself around Guaido. And he got the international community behind him. So that 
seems to be more of a catalyst. Now, the military coming out and supporting Maduro, you have to take that into account. But the sense is that this, if this starts breaking, things could happen in the next few months. Um, okay. Clearly, if it goes off the rails, we could be sitting for years, but I don't think that'll be the case. Just real quick, you adding Venezuela debt? The best time to add was at the end of last year when people had sort of thrown in the towel and were cutting it off their balance sheets. So we went to a full weight at the end of last year. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.